Could a menu at a fancy restaurant be a map for solving the climate challenge? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Devin Strolovich. A handful of prominent chefs are using their high-end restaurants to show how innovative grazing and growing practices can cut carbon pollution and create unique dining experiences. I have three restaurants. I'm not trying to make a, something that looks like a steak frit, and it's not a steak frit. It's just like, I have something else to offer you. Dominique Crenne is chef and owner of Atelier Crenne in San Francisco, which received two coveted Michelin stars. She's won numerous other awards and was featured on the Chef's Table documentary series on Netflix. Crenne was on the ground floor of the farm-to-table movement, which emphasized food that's local, seasonal, fresh, and nutritious. Farm-to-table 2.0 should incorporate all the best things of that, but I think it really needs to be focused on healthy soil as the world's most practical climate solution. Anthony Mint is executive chef and co-owner of The Perennial. He's also a partner in Mission Chinese Food and Commonwealth, a Michelin-starred restaurant. In working toward restaurant sustainability, Mint has made environmentalism and deliciousness his top priorities. Everyone is trying to move in a direction where their food is better for us, right? And in the process of doing that, they will make the environment better as well. Gwyneth Borden is executive director of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association. She previously worked in corporate affairs for IBM and also served on the staffs of Gavin Newsom and Barbara Boxer. Let's listen as all three join host Greg Dalton for a Climate One conversation about restaurants reducing their carbon footprint. Dominique Crenn, uh, you went to a Michelin-starred restaurant when you were nine years old. Um, tell us about your early relationship with food growing up. Well, um, obviously, um, I, I was born and raised in France. Uh, Anthony? Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, outside, yes. And um, food is a part of, of the culture in, in France. So food is, is something that um, you take very seriously. And um, my father and my mother come from farmers, and um, which kind of opened my eyes about... Uh, nature and the world and obviously the planet and I mean it was kind of natural to go to a Michelin star restaurant you know <laughs> <laughs> I mean I don't know it was no it was pretty amazing I remember I, I did order I think five dessert because I was kind of taken by it. <laughs> um, so it came organically to you. you. You grew up around it. Gwyneth Borden, uh, when you were growing up, meat, starch, and a vegetable were kind of the thing for a lot, you and a lot of others. No, that was the thinking. But my grandparents were farmers, and my dad was one of nine sons. Um, grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland. So I grew up, um, and I chose to spend time with my grandparents. And I, my earliest memories of my grandfather, and, and until the day before he died, he was on his tractor. Um, and as a, as a small child, if you said you were bored, you were picking strawberries. And I learned early on about the importance of food and what it meant. I really very much associated with my grandmother being a great cook. I also associated with my uncle, who was a hunter. We had a whole second freezer in our house with everything that my uncle ever shot. And I tell you that I ate all kinds of things that I 
don't like, like muskrat. What is even a muskrat uh, growing up? But if my uncle shot it, we ate it. Um, and, you know, so I grew up with that. And my parents had a little garden in our suburban backyard. And from a really early age, the association of the earth and animals and food was very near dear to my heart. I mean, I grew up eating grapes on the grapevine in my grandparents' backyard and wondering why I could never find those grapes in grocery stores. Well, they're actually wine grapes, but I didn't know that at that time. Um, to this day, I still can't eat grapes. <laughs> Anthony Mint, how about your earliest memories in relationship to food? There's that connection with childhood and favorite foods. What were some of yours? Um, well, I grew up watching a lot of cooking shows with my grandmother, and I feel like in the suburbs, I wasn't really thinking about food politics and the food system at a young age, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, as I got older, recently we had a daughter, started thinking more about food and climate change, and really wanting to use our platform in the food industry to make change. And as we kind of have gone down this path of learning about the potential for soil to really make a big difference and radically reverse climate change, what has struck me the most is just how optimistic it is and how vast the potential is. And so farm to table has been well established. People know what that is. What, what's the next step, Anthony Mint? What's beyond farm to table? What's, where, where's the leading edge right now of that movement? Well, farm to table 1.0, if we can call it that, it's about fresh and local and nutritious and healthy. It's kind of like know the farmer. It's a little bit quaint, I would almost say, pastoral. Farm to Table 2.0 should incorporate all the best things of that, but I think it really needs to be focused on healthy soil as the world's most practical climate solution. The problem is beef in feedlots that are being fed antibiotics and making the manure not usable. You know, if there's millions of acres of rangeland, it's not really land that's suitable for growing tomatoes and soybeans and stuff. The absolute best use from a food production standpoint is beef, and if beef can restore that land, just like planting trees, we have a real potential to save the world through how, our, how we eat and the choices we make. Dominique Kren, you don't serve beef in your restaurants. You have a different view of the, of the cattle industry. Well, I think it was very conscious. Um, the beef industry in the United States is... Um, I don't know if it's beef, first of all. Uh, I mean, seriously. Uh, but it's, it's kind of destroying, you know, um, a lot of things. I remember when I, and I read this article, and I kind of clicked in my head when I read this article about this company that went to the Amazon and cut down the tree just to put livestock um, of beef there because people were in demand of hamburger meat. That really, like, I was just like, are you serious? Are you crazy? It's just this greediness about uh, consumption is, it's killing, it's killing humanity, it's killing, you know, so I made a conscious decision until we fix that problem, I'm going to do the things, I'm actually, I, I, I want to do things that I believe that right for, um, for us, first of all, for my customer, for the environment, for the, for the climate, whatever, it's just I want to do the right thing. So beef will not be on my menu. Being carbon neutral can be a challenge in small towns. Take, for example, Traverse City in northern Michigan. The husband and wife team of Eric and Amy Colden opened White on Rice Sushi Truck in 2015. A year later, they opened a brick-and-mortar restaurant, and they're slowly working their way towards making White on Rice carbon neutral. We definitely like to let people know that we do the compost thing and that we're really trying to be aware of our carbon footprint. 
So, you know, obviously chopsticks made of wood, um, but then we have uh, wood boats that we use, soy sauce cups and ramekins, our soup cups. That's a priority that we do use products that are compostable. The big thing to me that I notice, and after working in other kitchens, is the food waste and the food scraps, like that's huge. Then that kind of breeds into the food a little bit. So now we're using organic free-range chickens. We're using tuna that's trucked in versus flown in. I do have troubles because how can you get asparagus in northern Michigan 12 months out of the year? I still have to have a vegetable roll on every day, and it happens to have asparagus in it. Like, that's a horrible excuse. Like, what else could I pick? What else could I pick? But it's been on my menu for like five years, and I got people that want that more than anything. Like, people will yell at my wife because I don't have asparagus that day. I feel like we're very small, but I think if everybody could just take little steps like this, make more mindful choices, it can make a big impact. I, I don't know what carbon neutral even looks like. I don't even know what carbon free, if that's a thing you can achieve. I know that we have to use trucks to get stuff here. I just have to chip away at it. There's no real end in sight because the more you see, <laughs> the more you see. You see how much more you can do and how much people don't do. There's a lot of small places just trying to exist. It's Eric and Amy Colden of White Rice on Sushi in Traverse City, Michigan. Gwyneth Borden, a lot of the in there, you know, overwhelming, so many things, trying to get the right supplies, the right food, small business, just trying to keep it going. Tell us about that, whether this is uh, really an elite thing for, for sort of high-end or, or, or well-endowed, well-capitalized restaurants. You know, how can the little person deal with all this complexity and be green? Well, I think, you know, locally people really make a concerted effort to get to know, you know, if the, what the water quality is. Will I get my fish from there? How do I use vegetables that maybe aren't as sexy? Some of the, you know, think about some of the root vegetables. How do I incorporate root vegetables that may be less expensive for me to purchase in my food? How can I use the tops of my carrots or other parts of the entire vegetable, not throwing it away? Maybe I'm using the skin. So people are being really creative and looking at the issue of food waste specifically. How can they take tonight's dinner and repurpose that to, for tomorrow's lunch to make sandwiches? How can they take an animal and do nose to tail, use the entire animal and then make stocks and things from from the bones. I mean, people are, are being very creative in the ways that they can to make a, a big difference. I mean, people here very much care about the quality of our food, and the quality of our food depends on our soil and our environment. I think we're lucky in the Bay Area that people have an understanding in that matter. Is it more expensive and hard? Are organics more expensive? Absolutely, they are. Um, and people make incremental choices. Some people choose to, to pay, buy organics in areas um, where it does make a big difference in taste and in terms of like where, where we know toxins are, are greatest, and then on other areas they don't. But as restaurants start to scale, especially if they have more than one location, they're in a better position with, with producers to negotiate better rates, or sometimes they can go in with another restaurant um, to kind of get better rates. But people are you know, really making an effort. I'm not saying it's easy. Sometimes, again, when you don't have scale to buy products, you know, compostable products, whatever it might be, it can be very difficult. And that's why mandates are not, you know, really preferred in this space. But I understand why people feel like they're necessary. Anthony Mitt, tell us about what you've tried to do to create sort of a, a full circle economy where there's, you know, there's worms that create poop that's food for the fish that then, tell us about that, trying to create a full circle at a restaurant. Sure. Um, 
we started working on the restaurant, the perennial, to kind of explore sustainability in a restaurant. What would it look like if you had, you know, kind of environmentalism right up there with deliciousness as your top priorities? And, you know, we started with an interest in food waste, conservation, all these things. Pretty quickly we learned that stuff is important, but our biggest potential is to move the industry towards ways to improve actually producing food, carbon farming, regenerative agriculture, and all these ways of growing food that actually reverse climate change. You know, the waste reduction, these things, it's kind of like working at the margins a little bit. It's not even like an elephant in the room with the like mismanagement of land and soil. It's the whole room. The whole room is on top of the elephant. So like if we had to think about just quickly as a thought experiment, what percent of food in the world is grown with healthy soil? I think it would be less than 5%. About 5% of American cropland is organic, just for a sense of scale, is that right? Uh, something like 4 to 5%. And then a lot of that organic land is kind of like industrial organic, where they plow the land and spray it with approved chemicals. They're not necessarily farming with nature. And so I think the biggest shift that we all need to embrace is how can we farm with nature? How can we get as much money to improve as much land as possible? Um, and so what these guys were doing in Traverse, you know, they really speak towards like the challenges of the small guy. And so the exciting thing for me is that carbon neutral represents a framework where admission Chinese 10 cents per diner is going to make the restaurant carbon neutral. It's not only for Atelier Kren, it's for anybody. It's for Shake Shack, it's for Panera. And those couple cents can be going towards farming practices that reverse climate change. I don't want French fried potatoes, red ripe tomatoes. I'm never satisfied. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the new farm to table, chefs cutting carbon. Coming up, Greg Dalton learns more about the challenges of running a sustainable restaurant. I try to educate the people that are working with me in my restaurant, but I'm also trying to educate my guests, you know, without throwing things in their face. But, like, it's obvious that there are things that we do that other restaurants don't agree with. That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about restaurants reducing their carbon footprint with Gwyneth Borden, executive director of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association, Dominique Crenn, chef and owner of Atelier Crenn, and Anthony Mint, executive chef and co-owner of The Perennial. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Gwyneth Borden, a lot of restaurants around the country these days claim to be sustainable. They have sustainable this and sustainable that. How do we know, you know, how, what is sustainable, first of all? How do you define it? I mean, I think that's hard, right? What is sustainable? Is it local farms that are close by? Is it that you're, you're table, you have bamboo tables? I mean, it's, the word sustainable is a, a, a very broad word, um, and it means a lot of different things to a lot of people. I think that, you know, yes, there are some people who say fresh. On, it's sort of like natural fresh, but doesn't mean organic, right? There's, there's, there's words that people use that may sound better. They could, they could say the chicken's free range, but that doesn't necessarily mean the chicken's organic. It's just sort of decoding what those things mean. You know, having a label of organic is a very specific 
designation. Um, but I think if you see a menu that has a lot of things on it, you can pretty much guess that it's not a sustainable restaurant, right? I mean, part of the part of being sustainable is having a very limited menu where you can reuse things across the menu and also manage how much you need to buy on a regular basis so that you don't have food waste. So if you see a place with a large menu, they're probably not very uh, sustainable. And that's why you, I think you've seen more and more trends of prefix, even places that want you to, to pay in advance. The advantage of that is that they can minimize food waste. They can buy exactly the amount of food that they know they need and make the exact number of dishes. And that's a wonderful thing. And I know consumers aren't necessarily used to that. But I think you know consumers need to really embrace this notion of, I don't want to go in a restaurant that offers me everything I could possibly eat. I want to go in a restaurant that has a very focused menu that's very fresh of what's seasonal, that's the other thing. If they're offering you something, if they're offering you mangoes in December and they're in Des Moines, that's clearly not sustainable, right? So it might be healthy and great to have mangoes, but that's not sustainable. I mean, so there's some things that are kind of obvious, seasonal, seasonality, length of menu, but then there's choices that consumers have to make in terms of really supporting those places that are trying to move you in that direction. Dominique Crane, you're known for a lot of seafood uh, at your restaurants. How do you feel about uh, farmed seafood? Some people would say that that's, that's better, that's the future, aquaculture. What's your view on, you've studied the ocean very carefully, what's your view on aquaculture? Um, I think it's still in progress in the work. I'm not sure yet. I'm a little bit troubled with everything that's going on with the ocean. And, and um, I mean, I work with um, some farm just for like the trout because up in Sacramento and all that. But I think everything needs to be um, really work very well because uh, you can like, you know, people can use aquaculture. People can use organic, but at the end of the day, it's not all organic, you know, just like, so I think I'm, I'm a little bit, that those words kind of make me crazy, you know. I think what we need to do as as individual is to do our own research and understand if the farm want to do, you know, farm fish. We need to go there to understand what they're doing, you know. And the same the same thing, you know. If there is a, I mean, I know a lot of farmers that can't have organic um, a certification, but they do everything sustainable, like they. Yeah. They make sure there is no pesticides and and small farm. I want to support those people, you know. So, it's it's really up to us um, to make sure we're doing the right thing. But like a buying, we have a responsibility to buy the right thing. But it's up to me as a chef to make sure that if I go to a vendor, I make sure that I know exactly the transparency of who they are, you know. So just it's it's just knowledge is power, you know. So get the information and then you can make your own choices. And you spend a lot of time doing that, running a restaurant, but for an average consumer going to the grocery store who spends five seconds making a decision, that all doing all that sounds exhaustive and complicating, and who has the time and energy for all that? I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in a way, that is, to me, the beauty of the label carbon neutral, because it mm -hmm. covers a lot of ground, and at the end of the day, I think it's a little bit unrealistic to ask those guys in Michigan totally reinvent yourselves. It's unrealistic to ask McDonald's, totally reinvent yourself. There's a, they're shareholders. They can't totally reinvent themselves. They can send five cents a burger towards improving the supply chain, improving healthy soil. You know, I think if we asked, you know, I don't know if we took a poll in the room really quick, let's say there's like two salad restaurants right next to each other, you know, a block from your work, uh, chicken Caesar salad, free range chicken, whatever, one place is $12, one place is carbon neutral and it's $12.20. And the 20 cents goes towards improving farming. 
which one would you choose? Maybe it doesn't even matter. You would just go to whichever, because that doesn't matter. But if that second one with the 20 cents, if 1% of restaurants did that, billions of dollars is going towards solving the food system. So Gwyneth Borden, let's t talk to us about that. You represent the industry here in San Francisco, which is you know, a, a bubble we know. Uh, but if Anthony's correct in his math, just a, a few cents can really make a difference and regenerate the soil. It seems like, you know, can restaurants get on board for that? No, absolutely. I mean, a lot of restaurants are already on board for that. Some are working with their own, they have their own farms, they're, they have their, they're doing beehives on top of their businesses. People are doing a lot to, to, to lessen their carbon footprint and to really proselytize the restaurateurs in other parts of the country to get them on the same page. I mean, people, if you're in the food business, <laughs> you're in the, in the body nourishment business and unhealthy soil leaves unhealthy healthy bodies and you don't want that. I mean, even the large, you, you mentioned McDonald's, I mean, they are also moving into the direction of bringing back cooking to food and like mangoes and smoothies. I mean, I think everyone is trying to move in a direction where their food is better for us, right? And, mm -hmm. and in the process of doing that, they will make the environment better as well. So it's an, it's an interesting um, inflection point where we are right now, where there's this, this coinciding movement of you know, away from pharmaceuticals and more of a desire of going back to looking at food as a way to deal with pain and other things and the ailments in our body. And as, as we move in that direction, then I think we, everyone starts to see the value of the environment and what food and healthy food can provide for that. And Americans are eating less meat, more poultry. Gwyneth Borden, uh, one report is that millennials, 40% of millennials are moving or adopting a plant-based diet. I found that. I mean, we've had interns every single year, and every year we've had interns that have either been pescatarian, vegan, or vegetarian. It's definitely a generational shift. Um, and what's been really fascinating is, you know, more and more restaurants, while they're not labeling themselves vegan, are are minimizing kind of the meat offerings or kind of putting them on the side and really focusing on the vegetables forward. I mean, using the language vegan is tricky because it does turn off people who are not vegan, who think I'm gonna have vegan cuisine tonight for dinner rather than thinking that it's a restaurant they could eat any time and enjoy their meal. Um, but you're seeing a, a trend, a subtle trend of people moving in that direction where where meat and plant-based things are much more at the forefront, but not necessarily being super obvious about it. And that's happening at all price points um, in the marketplace. You think about the Impossible Burger is another great example, and that was that was happening at Shake Shack and, and then also fine dining restaurants. People were really And White Castle. That. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's amazing, <laughs> yeah. that movement. We're talking about restaurants and sustainability with Gwyneth Borden, a representative of the restaurant industry in San Francisco, Dominique Crenn, a Michelin-starred chef and restaurant owner, and Anthony Mint, an executive chef and restaurant owner. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask our guests uh, some quick questions, starting with true or false, uh, Gwyneth Borden, <laughs> Chinese restaurants are slower to adopt environmentally friendly practices <laughs> than other restaurants. <laughs> It's always a <laughs> <laughs> Dominique, do you want to answer that? Truth. Truth. Uh, Anthony Mint, organic crops require application of more pesticides and insecticides <laughs> than traditional crops. True or false? I don't know that. Dominique Crenn, cooking is activism. <laughs> right. Truth. Dominique Crenn, some people think you should shut up and cook. That's right. <laughs> That's what you plan to do. <laughs> oh, no, I'm never going to shut up. <laughs> and I still cook, so that's okay. 
this is association. I'll mention a noun, something, and the first thing that pops to your mind, unfiltered, uh, Anthony Mint, GMOs. I'm in favor of natural breeding. That was a long word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, first thing that comes to your mind, Dominique Crenn, foie gras. No comment. <laughs> Gwyneth Borden, kale. That is great for you. <laughs> uh, Gwyneth Borden, big food. Big food. Big food can help move the country forward. They have to take on their responsibility. Anthony Mint, your favorite cheese. Ooh, uh, I really like Bria Severin. That's uh, French. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dominique Crenn, your favorite vegetable. Oh, uh, tomato. I mean, it's tomato. It's a fruit. It's a fruit <laughs> vegetable. Yeah, tomato. It's umami. It's 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 amazing, sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Gwyneth Borden, a food you would be happy to never eat again. It's really funny because I I pretty much like most things. Do you think of something seafood? Maybe I don't like. I don't know. I'm having a hard time with that. Dominique, something you don't want to eat again. Oh, wilted lettuce. <laughs> uh, last question, Dominique Crenn, the best food to help a hangover? I don't know. I never have a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's give them a round for getting through that lightning round. I think we failed. Speaking of hangovers, uh, Dominique Crenn, tell us about the wine industry growing around the world and what is the environmental impact of the wine industry? What are the issues there? Well, I think the issues have been uh, herbicide and uh, pesticide, I think. Um, I've, I've been serving a lot. I mean, uh, when we open Petit Crenn, everything is, the wine list is biodynamic and organic. The same thing we do at Atelier and at Bar Crenn. So... What is biodynamic? What does that mean? Um, it's kind of the science of the moon. It's uh, whatever um, the, the environment that you are is uh, helping you to kind of grow whatever it needs to be grown. Um, the right thing for that the, place. Yeah, the, the right thing for that place because I think wine is a big is a big problem also. I mean, when you have, you're growing all those grapes and pesticide and the soil, I mean... It's 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 a big problem too, and we not talk we don't talk about that often. We just talk about the food, but we need to talk about the winemaking also, which is also something very important right now. Anthony, met your thoughts on on wine and it, its impact. You're looking to change the food and system. Wines, you know, is a significant part of that. Is that on your radar or not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's many acres in San Francisco. All the the city collects something like 700 tons of compostables a day. Quite a lot of that is distributed on local vineyards. And what an amazing program if other cities could develop that. Flip side is, you know, like imagine in France, uh, there's a wine cellar, um, you know, in, the, in a hillside or underground or something like a wine cave that has no carbon footprint to cool the wine or like store it. Here in California, it's hot. Maybe there's an air conditioned warehouse storing the wine. And so it's a little bit tricky to focus too much on things like local. Uh, I think it's way more important to focus on kind of the growing practices and how the wine and the soil are basically working together in this kind of climate lens. 
Gwyneth Borden, uh, a lot of innovation happening, people concerned about the growing appetite for protein. Uh, there's a startups, venture capital going into uh, you know, fake meat or lab meat. They have clean meat, as I think what they call it. Uh, what, is that something that's on your radar, this idea of uh, tuna without a fish, you know, cellular, uh, growing basically steaks in a, in a laboratory? What do you think about I that? think restaurants aren't quite there in that, in that, <laughs> that space. I mean, we, the Impossible Burger would be the closest thing, I would say, in terms of people coming up with a, a, a product that acts a lot like beef but isn't beef um, for their menus. But I think that the, you know, people who are in the restaurant business are really into like, the hospitality and the service. And kind of the science stuff interests them, but it's, you know, no one's running out to get this latest latest and greatest um, f fake meat product on, on their tables, but they are looking at ways to make dishes with, with produce that might resemble meat, um, you know, the, the watermelon that looks like a ham or, or doing dishes like that. So you see more of that or people taking um, wordplay with meat dishes and, and using them for vegetable dishes. So you see that, but you don't see it's quite the sort of scientific experiment beyond like sous vide and other kind of cooking methods. Um, I think, you know, that's... It'll be interesting to see where that all goes. And, down the road. Down it's not the road. quite there yet. You know, I just think it's just not, yeah. Dominique Crane, your thoughts on, obviously, you're a, a, a naturalist. Your, your thoughts about... Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's like, I was just, I'm just thinking right now is, what do we have to mimic meat or tuna? Why we don't try to find something that is maybe something else, you know? And it's, it just makes you think about how the culture of the human culture is. It's like, oh my God, if I don't have my burger, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like die. You know, it's like, well, we don't try to find something else. Um, I don't want to say anything about impossible meat, but I, I'm not sold on this. You know, he used he use corn and he used soy and he used wheat. It's and not and and GMO. I mean, it's just like, you know, so we have to be very careful when we want to do something. If they want to do something like that, they need to go, I, as I always say, you know, talk the talk and walk the walk. But why we don't try to like, hey, I'm, I mean, I have three restaurants. I'm not trying to make uh, something that looks like a steak frit and it's not a steak frit. It's just mm -hmm. like, I have something else to offer you, you know, it's just like. Let's let's be creative here, and not just like, oh, this is all the staple of the American, you know, society, and I'm, I'm going to make tuna melt, which is not tuna, but it's going to melt. I mean, whatever. <laughs> um, I mean, why we don't try to like be open to something maybe more nutritious and delicious? Why not? You know. Anthony, mean, the, the advocates of this would say nine billion people, rising uh, middle classes in China and India you know, craving for protein. Uh, if that protein is satisfied, the oceans will be decimated. There's not enough land that, you know, coming up with a laboratory solution will satisfy people and maybe save the planet. Do you buy it? Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, the, there's definitely a place for that kind of product as an overall strategy to reduce the consumption of beef raised on feedlots. Let's just be clear. For sure, that's a good, that's a good replacement. But in a lot of ways, that's kind of like a Band-Aid strategy that's not actually solving the bigger problem. And so the bigger problem is those products are not necessarily reversing climate change. If you take the acreage that those things are produced on and you were to use that acreage to produce food regeneratively in a way that improves the soil, you would do better than, than the lab-grown meat. And then in terms of the 9 billion, I mean, I think I heard a stat the other day that it's something like 70% of the world's food 
is grown on 19% of the land on smallholder farms, like in Africa, Asia, wherever, smallholder farms. And so that by far is like the solution. You know, the, the mistake that people think about is like, oh, what am I gonna do without the, you know, the nitrogen fertilizer and all these things? Those things are actually kind of just a mistake in history where we started on a path of industrial agriculture to keep kind of bomb factories on standby producing nitrogen. And it's not actually better for growing food in the long run. It's good in the short run. It's like, you know, taking drugs or taking steroids, but it's not better for the soil, definitely not better for the planet. I just want to add to that and just say that I think in the future you're going to see things in the menu that normally aren't on the menu, right? Crickets, for example, mm. you know, other, you know, kelp. There's lots of things that are regenerative. You're starting Crickets. to see new pieces of <laughs> fish and other fish, fish that you had never really heard of before on the menu. Yeah. I think people are going to just change the equation. Yeah. They're not going to start making products in the laboratory to serve in restaurants, but they're going to look for things that, we, that maybe we used to eat or that, are, that naturally regenerate and incorporate into our diet. So the menus today that have burgers on them could be, you know, some sort of cricket or kelp or some other dish that we haven't yet conceived of. I really think that's going to be the change. It's not so much that we're going to see things made in laboratories appearing on restaurant menus. There'll be a fun restaurant here or there that will do that um, as a gimmick, but um, that's not the long-term strategy. I am your burger man. You're listening to a conversation about carbon-neutral cooking and dining. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg Dalton finds out more about how restaurants can be platforms for changing the food system. We're at a moment in food where it's basically like renewable energy many years ago. There are now ways of producing food that can save the planet. How fast can we adopt them? That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the new farm to table with Gwyneth Borden. Executive Director of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association, Dominique Crenn, chef and owner of Atelier Crenn, and Anthony Mint, executive chef and co-owner of The Perennial. Here's Greg. Anthony, you named your restaurant The Perennial, so tell us what a perennial is and how you think it could be a, a big ch change for the food system. Sure. Um, honestly, we named it The Perennial after visiting a man named John Wick, who I think might be in the audience tonight. And so thank you for the inspiration, John. But the, the name is a reference to kind of like a new kind of sustainability that is prioritizing growing through natural systems. And so like a lot of the ecosystems like in the US or whatever used to be perennial polycultures. And so without like perennial grasses and these things kind of anchoring these ecosystems, they kind of just erode. And you know, I heard a stat somewhere that scared the hell out of me. Uh, in the last 50 years, we have abandoned as much farmland as all the farmland. Mm. Okay, so why is that? Because we're not farming the right way. And so we're really excited because we're, we're at a moment in food where it's basically like renewable energy many years ago. There are now ways of producing food that can save the planet. How fast can we adopt them? How fast can we change the acreage? I don't blame anybody for having like any ideas that they had before. This is brand new. There's a, we serve, we bake bread with a perennial grain called Kernza. It's not available to the public yet. So why? Uh, because they're just now. So they spent 15 years doing natural breeding. The Land Institute in Kansas with the University of Minnesota 
and you know, natural breeding takes time. I think so Patagonia's making, putting Patagonia's beer. making beer, uh, so you can get long root ale uh, made with Kernza, K-E-R-N-Z-A, and so it's the first kind of perennial grain. 10, 20, 50 years from now, there's gonna be perennial wheat and perennial rice, but we gotta start now. And so it's sort of like uh, introducing this term and kind of trying to usher in farm to table 2.0. Does that also tell us about no-till, the importance of till, no-till, in terms of you're talking about soil, how damaging is tillage, and, and you know, why is that, how could that be changed? Well, we think about like the rainforest. Oh man, that's horrible to chop down the rainforest. The soil is the rainforest in a like microbiological form. There's all this life, you know, there's roots on fungus. I heard an anecdote about in a forest, there's a tree stump and Nothing, no leaves, nothing. Scientists would think that would be dead. They scrape it, it's actually alive. How's that possible? That's impossible. It's because all the other trees are keeping that tree stump alive to preserve the network. There's so much going on underground, we don't know about it. It's like way over our heads. And the organic matter in the soil is what makes food nutritious, delicious, and holds carbon in the soil. And so, you know, basically, if you're gonna plow that up, you're killing that. If you plow it up every year, you're systematically losing all that organic matter, and that's why we've lost all the farmland over 50 years, and that's why we have a golden opportunity right now to reverse that trend. Dominique Cran, you uh, were named the world's best female chef in 2016, <laughs> and had some very strong thoughts about, about that. Tell us about the glass ceiling and, and you know, um, that award, what you feel about that award. So first of all, I, I dislike the word uh, female chef. Uh, I, think, I think a chef is a chef. Um, I was talking to someone the other day, and oh, this journalist, and she, she, I don't think she understood why I will uh, be so strongly um, against you know, that award. And I'm like, well, when you're listening to music, do you listen to music because it's a woman, or do you listen to music because you like the music? So when you eat food, I'm cooking food for you. Do you like it because it's a man cooking it or it's a woman that cooking it? And they don't have any answer. It's not about gender. And um, I, I understand that, um, obviously, um, the woman power needs to raise to the top, but like to, to judge someone because of their gender, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think, I mean, it's the bigger issue is that people, when they don't want to be inclusive, they're like, well, why don't we create a women award? Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, why not look at more inclusive restaurants that women happen to also be chefs of? Then you wouldn't have to. It's sort of like, we don't want to be more inclusive, so we'll create the special Asian chef, African-American chef, whatever award, because for some reason, we can't possibly conceive that all these people are the same and, and can compete at the same level. So I, I do find it offensive because it's, it's as if, like, well, you can't compete at the level that we, at the game that we decided, so we're going to just give you something else to make you feel better about yourself. You, can, you, you don't really know who's cooking at the restaurants that you go to. I mean, maybe the executive chef is a man, but maybe the actual um, chef de cuisine is a woman, right? I mean, and you like that restaurant, and you don't really know if it's a man or a woman, but, you know, the person whose name's on the door sometimes gets the, the primary recognition. So, I mean, it's, it's just kind of silly, really. No, but what, what I want to say is, is you know, 
diversity bring um, uh, dialogue, new ideas, and it bring it's I don't know it's 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 a hub for evolution, and we have to be inclusive of everything. I think this is very important. You know, you have to welcome everything, everyone. This is very important. It's the same thing in the kitchen. You know, you have to welcome everyone in the kitchen. It's not just a white boys club. Sorry to say white boys club because it's true for a long time, you know. Um, it's, it should not be a club. It's a place where we're cooking because we want to bring people together. We want to create memories. We want to create experience. We want to be a part of what is good for everyone and humanity and all that. You know, it's just like it doesn't matter if it's man or a woman. I mean, first of all, women cook better than men. But <laughs> 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 who's cooking at home? Your grandmother or your mother, right? Uh, no, but like it's just like, can we stop about this? It's, uh, this, this narrative just sort of me crazy. Do you ever get overwhelmed or despair about the, the fate of the world? You know a lot, Dominique Crenn, about the oceans, the, 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 where the earth, the math is dark, the times are dire. Do you ever get despondent about that? You know, I'm, I'm a very um, positive nature. I, get, I don't get depressed very easily. Um, no matter of fact, it makes me want to do more of what's going on right now. Um, so it motivates you. I just totally motivate me. And me, because I know that I do have a responsibility for the future, for the future generation. It's so important, you know. Um, it's um, it's it's exciting. It's really exciting. And you know what exciting is is when you talk to youngster and when they are willing to listen to it. Also, it's very exciting to see that they also want to change it, you know. And uh, we just have that responsibility to do it. I mean. Everything that, you know, we're doing, everything that Anthony is doing, you know, it's a process. You know, everything is a process. You know, not, nothing's going to happen overnight. But if you just do a little bit every day, I think we can change the course of things. You know, when you go to a restaurant if, and you make sure if you drink water or whatever, just make sure you, you ask them to not give you any plastic straw. One thing. It's one thing you can do. No, it's true. One thing you can do... The you straw go, thing has taken off very quickly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you go buy your grocery, bring your own bag, you know, don't take a plastic home, you know, like just little things like that will be... It doesn't cost any anything, but the impact of it is amazing. Shapes your culture and also defines who you are, if, even if it doesn't Absolutely, change, it yeah. defines who you are. We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome. Good evening. Thank you all for being here. This has been a wonderful evening. I am Patricia Port recently retired from the government. My question is, could you each say a few words about your relationships with the food banks? Gwyneth Borden. Yeah, we, we partner with the San Francisco Marin Food Bank pretty frequently. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we're the restaurant association. We, you know, people are coming into restaurants, but we our responsibility is just not just to people who are dining in our restaurants, but making sure other people get to eat. And obviously there, there it's a big you know, food gap in our country. We also work with Quesa, who's just down the street, that does the farmer's market. And what most people don't know that Quesa does is that they're actually educating 
urban kids about agriculture and where their food comes from. And so while we take for granted that we are, you know, buying, you know, tomatoes or whatever at the farmer's market, they're helping kids who don't, who, who might have never actually seen, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge, you might, you might not realize that it's that hap it happens that way, but to know about food. So we work closely with the, the food bank and the Quasa and other organizations around hunger issues, especially. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Thanks. Uh, hi, Jacob Conway, live in San Francisco, in Richmond. Um, my question is, it, a couple months ago, earlier this year, um, the journal Nature kind of came out and verified what we thought to be true previously, which is that animal agriculture is the leading cause of environmental degradation, greenhouse gas emissions. When you look at um, all of the contributors, that's the number one cause. So. From your guys' perspective, why isn't the immediate response to that in the food industry, oh, let's go plant-based? If, if animals from dairy to meat are the leading cause of the degradation and the impact, the negative impact, why aren't we just saying, let's go to plants and then figure out the animals later? I mean, I think that would basically be like looking at cars and saying, cars are a big problem. Why doesn't everybody bike? There's a place for cars. You know, that's the reality. People are going to keep driving. Let's instead find solutions like creating an electric car. In the case of beef, as Dominique was saying, the problem is the management and the production of beef. Cows themselves are not the problem. Uh, the land that used to be in the West was grazed by bison. There's more pounds, or there are fewer pounds of cows in America today than there used to be of bison. And those bison were crucial to keeping those ecosystems healthy, keeping those, that soil healthy. It's a dry environment, and you can't necessarily grow soybeans and tomatoes and these things. Cows produce 50 to 70 pounds of manure a day. So this is photosynthetic fertilizer that is keeping the land healthy. The cows aren't on the land right now. If we can get them back on the land, cows and livestock and animals will not be the leading cause of climate change, as you're saying in the article. So it's about factory farms. Let's go to our next question. Hi, my name is Brittany C. I'm a sustainability consultant for architects and engineers. Um, I am curious. So you were saying um, there are roads, so you know cars are going to drive on it. If we have gas ones, um, maybe we provide them electric ones, and then people will use those. So I'm very interested in decarbonization and um, electrifying our, our restaurants, potentially. Um, restaurants uh, create big trends. People watch them. And so it would be really interesting to see restaurants take um, like their gas stoves and um, their equipment that use gas um, and use electricity instead. Um, what are your guys' views on that trend, if that's a possibility, and maybe um, what do we want to tell utilities or manufacturers uh, to push this forward? Thank you. So electrifying restaurants. I can take that. Anthony Mann. When we were working on the perennial, we looked pretty closely at carbon footprint stuff. So part of the issue in the Bay Area is that uh, PG&E was not offering 100% renewable options at that time. Plus, gas equipment is substantially cheaper than electric equipment. And so kind of at the conversion rate of the carbon footprint of the gas and the lack of efficiency we ended up choosing some gas equipment. I think as renewables, renewable energy becomes available, as equipment becomes a, you know, more popular in the US, there should be a trend towards more electric equipment in restaurants. Um, if anybody is running restaurants and doesn't know this stuff, there's a, a local air, um, arm of PG&E called the Food Service Technology Center. Super amazing guys. They provide, and gals, 
I think, but they provide free, I've only met guys there, so, but they, uh, they provide free consulting for anybody in the Bay Area. And so mm -hmm. it's kind of like the James Bond lab. There's all these guys drinking espresso and like testing all the equipment. And, you know, electric equipment is more efficient. And so if you are in a place where, but it sort of comes down to volume. So if you're like frying, you know, 50 pounds of French fries an hour, get the electric deep fryer, even though it costs $7,000. If you're frying like a couple things once in a while, and the other uh, gas deep fryer seven hundred dollars, you know maybe that's okay. That, that's like a tr tough trade-off. Yeah. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Erica Kudaba. I'm an environmental engineer, and I work closely with some commercial kitchens. I find that um, in commercial kitchens, maybe not at your level, but um, in some of the more common ones, that there's a lot of staff turnover. And I appreciate all of the sustainability metrics that you guys were kind of talking about before any of the food comes even into the kitchen. But I was wondering if you have any encouraging remarks for the kitchen staff um, and maybe some of the lower restaurants that have high staff turnover and lower um, employee incentives to maybe be practicing these sustainability techniques, um, not from the chef level, but actually from like the employees that are working there, if you have any suggestions to engage them. Dominique Cran? Well, um, Thank you for the question. Dominic Cran. Well, um, thank you for the question. I think I think for anything, it doesn't not just in a restaurant. When you, you when you become um, uh, you start to own your business, I think the first things you need to look at is the people that are working with you, and you have to be able to invest um, into uh, into them. I think this is not number one thing. So, you know, if you treat your employee well, if you give them the tool to success and also uh, give them opportunity, you're going to see um, uh, that they will stay with you. You know, I mean, I mean, obviously the industry is there's so much turnover. It's it's crazy. So, I mean, when I open, I mean, this is the third restaurant, and I got to tell you, for the last three years, it's been very consistent of us keeping people in because we invest in people. Um, we take care of them. Um, obviously, we treat them with a lot of respect. We uh, definitely uh, pay them you know, properly. We want to make sure they have a, they have a balanced life, um, you know, creating also retirement for one Kaplan. Somebody, you know, can start as a commie in my restaurant three years later is become one of the executive assistant. Why? Because we we give them the tool and maybe we send them somewhere. We also uh, implementing this program um, uh, that we will pay um, time away to give you time to charity. If you go and, and do volunteer work somewhere, we will, we will pay for that. So you just have to take care of them. And, and when you take care of the people that are working not for you, but with you, it just creates this incredible team. And then the business, then the business, I think, it's become kind of successful. Greg Dalton has been talking about carbon-neutral restaurants with Dominique Crenn chef and owner of Atelier Crenne and two other San Francisco restaurants. Anthony Mint, executive chef and co-owner of The Perennial. And Gwyneth Borden, executive director of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
and join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea, Devin Strolovich, and Claire Schoen edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.